Did you open God's precious holy word to the Revelation chapter 2? And we'll be beginning in verse 8. It is the message to the church in uh, Smyrna. And it starts out, let me get my bearings here. Um, here we go. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the city of Smyrna, first of all. We noted last time how beautiful and how important Ephesus was in its day. A commercial giant, a, a banking giant, and very important for trade coming in the great port at Ephesus and then going out through those four major trade routes that left Ephesus. And then, of course, the goods that came in and then made it to the port and out from the port to other parts of the world. Smyrna was very similar, not as large at Ephesus, but it also, the city of Smyrna enjoyed a great uh, harbor. Not only that, but the city of Smyrna was very well organized, very well laid out. It had a, a special network of streets and avenues, and to the side next to it, it had a separate but very fertile and productive farmland, and they were pretty much self-sufficient in their production, but there was also uh, a medical school in Smyrna. And additionally, the city of Smyrna became known because it was the uh, birthplace of Homer, who was a, an ancient writer uh, many hundreds of years ago. So these, these roads, these trade routes that would, that uh, actually a major trade route that came in, unlike Ephesus, which had several, Smyrna had one major trade route that uh, came to the to the harbor there and led out from there and then back into the harbor. But the roads were from Persia, from Smyrna to Persia, Smyrna to India, and uh, Smyrna to Rome. And you can see in, in church maps, if you have what I have, uh, how, it was, uh, how it was laid out. So this was a wealthy commercial giant city for its day. Streets were always busy and the streets were littered with pagan temples. So that meant that there was a lot of uh, aberrant behavior in that activity because pagan temples were always built around perverse sexual activity. So the usual horrific uh, sexual activities that were identified with pagan worship were commonplace in Smyrna. It was also a, a cultural center in the, the Roman Empire. It had the largest theater in the world. There was a large, modern for its day, a modern gymnasium located in the city. It was also noted for being a music center in the ancient world of Rome. So here you have aberrant sexual behavior available for everybody all over the streets, wealth and riches wild, worldly music that originated there, brutal, bloody sporting events that were always going on there at the big gymnasium. Uh, and then you had these sensual, suggestive theatrical events that were taking place, produced, and then played on the stage at the empires, the Roman empires, from, from the best playwrights around the ancient world, played right there in the world's greatest uh, city. Now, in the middle of all that 
awful environment was this church, a suffering church, the church of Smyrna, a church that had remained true to Christ and had remained true to his word, especially in the midst of all that. And such a church, especially in that kind of environment that remains true to Christ and true to his word is surely going to suffer as they did in their day. Smyrna means bruised myrrh. Now myrrh was a sweet fragrance, uh, well known for its connection with funerals and, and burials. So it, it would have, it's an appropriate name for the city where this church existed, a church that was called to suffer. I'm constantly mindful of how churches are suffering today. Families are suffering. Individuals are suffering. Can't go to work. Uh, the world suddenly stopped. And we're wondering if, it's when it, if and when it's going to start back so that we can get, get back into it. But to some degree, all of us are then called to suffer. We're suffering from separation from those we love or from, even from coming to church and assembling uh, churches are suffering because tithes and offerings are not coming in. Folks are not coming in and, and loving and welcoming each other personally like, uh, like uh, we're accustomed to in church life. So in, in a lot of ways, churches are called to suffer today just like Smyrna here uh, was called to suffer. And it was a terrible time of suffering for the Smyrnaean Christians so Jesus in these seven letters starts out always, I, should have, I, I may not have pointed this out last time when we started with the church at Ephesus, but he always introduces himself in a manner that is needful for the church. He presents himself some way, one way to Ephesus and here he presents himself to Smyrna in this way because this is the way Smyrna needed to understand him. Now remember, let's go back. The book of the Revelation, the Revela it, it, is, it is the account, it is the last of the living apostles now commissioned by the Son of God because God the Father had given the gift to God the Son that he could now be revealed, fully manifested, the fullness of his deity and how he's going to bring the whole world to a conclusion that we'll see at the close of the Revelation. This was the gift of the Father to the Son. And so now the church is armed with this great teaching of the deity of Christ, the power of Christ. He is our creator. He is our consummator. He is the one who sustains us and leads us. And he's finally going to call all things into judgment and then carry his own into heaven when it's all over and then into the new heaven and the new earth. So here... He's he was introduced in a special way to Ephesus, but now further expanding our knowledge of the greatness of the Christ as the gift of the Father to the Son that he might be revealed, that he might be, un be unveiled to us. Look, look see here uh, in, in the verses how he's introduced. And to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write... These things says, and he first of all, he calls himself the first and the last. 
There's an interesting historical truth about Smyrna. From the 7th to the 3rd century BC, Smyrna ceased to exist as a city. It was written in its history how it came back to life after those centuries of having ceased to exist. And when it came back to life, Smyrna became a loyal ally to Rome. And so Rome was viewed by the citizens of Smyrna as the savior and the one by whose strength the city had become revitalized. So for Jesus to identify himself here as the one uh, who was dead and who was alive again, the first and the last, uh, they, would, they would have a special understanding of, of what that means. These things, says the first and the last, who became dead, agenito, who became dead. This was of his purpose and will. He became dead and came to life. How the Smyrnaeans could have identified with that. Now, if you think about the church at Smyrna there, the church itself, they were suffering persecution. But the city itself was, was full of, of pride uh, and, and loyalty to Rome and to, to man-made things, you know. But for Christ here to identify himself to Smyrna as the first and the last, it was his, his identification to the church first to Smyrna and then through Smyrna to all of us, even, to, even here to Shiloh and all churches, that he knows the end from the beginning and all points in between. I'm always, always preaching about the sovereignty of God. That sovereignty is found in space and time in the power of the Christ. Paul writes to the Colossians and says that, it's, that, that Christ, up, he, 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 in him we are held up, we're held together. Sunistemi is the Greek word. We're, in Christ we're held together. So the one who made us holds us together. Uh, he calls his own to himself. He saves us. He gives his life for us to pay the price for our ransom and our redemption. And then he's the last. He knows the last. He knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He's the first. He's the last. And so to say that to the churches would grip our hearts to study this as we open the pages of this book of the Revelation. And you and I know from already having studied the book uh, in times past that it is leading us to the end. It's taking us to the end, to the consummation of the current order of things. Those things are in the power of Christ. And now Christ is being introduced to the church as the one who is the very one who died, who lived with them and healed their sickness and born of the virgin, died on the cross, ascended, raised up from the grave, ascended into heaven. That same Christ now with all of his power holding us together and finally will bring all things, being the first and the last, will bring all things together. So really those of us who are steadfastly connected to Christ and united with him, we're, we're sort of outside of time and we're, we're beyond the power of death. We have nothing to fear. 
because he's the first and the last and he is our savior. He is the Christ of, of God. So um, looking at this, we're comforted to know that Christ is our all in all. Not only that, but note again how personal Christ is with the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation and poverty. Okay, an impoverished church. This is an impoverished church. And the Lord knew of their tribulation and their and their poverty. I think somebody dropped a set out of the ring. They scared me to death. Good. You're good. Okay. Um, Ephesus suffered from within. Smyrna suffered from without. Tribulation and poverty. These words describe very serious trouble. Tribulation speaks of intense pressure. It's a very strong word. Flips is the great, very strong word in the Greek text. So this church is under a great deal of pressure from without. This little island of hope, this, this light, this lampstand, this light in the darkness, alone, surrounded by all of the horrific, awful, sinful conditions that existed in that day, and may I say exist today, was under intense pressure. The whole city, look back up here, think about the paganism, the whole city given over to sensuality uh, and to the beat of the wildest music of the day coming from all around the Roman Empire that they could play in that very famous theater. The wine flowed like a river like it did in Ephesus and the smoke of the addicting opious incense that arose from the pagan temples filled the air, dulled the senses, made people lose all sense of reason. The temple prostitutes would have writhed and pulsated in the middle of the streets to entice people to come into their pagan temples, uh, barely clothed in their, in their awful dances. Uh, so drunkenness, insensitivity because of, because of the, the drugs, the illicit and the perverted sexual activity of the pagan temples, people with more money than they knew what to do with in the place that was Smyrna, a commercial giant, a wealthy city, theatrical plays designed to stimulate fleshly desires in the world's biggest theater. Well, I mean, I could go on and on with this, okay? But you can understand why they were under intense pressure. They stood against those things. Now, the next word there is poverty. Poverty. Because of their allegiance to Christ, they became social and economic outcasts. And Jesus knew all about it. Now let me, let me, uh, let me uh, help us to understand why he would use the word poverty. I think I've said this before, but, but to, to reiterate, 
all of the trades and skills of people were tied to labor unions, which were in those days, each union, a, a particular kind of labor union would have been united to a particular pagan temple. So if you wanted a certain kind of skill, work, skilled work to be done or whatever, you would have to go and these workers would have to, of course, be worshipers of that temple. Well, Christians couldn't do that. Therefore, they couldn't be hired in that culture. So they're impoverished. They don't, they don't have opportunities to work. But look at, look and notice what Jesus says here. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, rich. There is a wealth that the world cannot understand that surpasses the world's wealth and that's spiritual wealth, spiritual richness, treasures in heaven. Spiritual enrichment can often come from material impoverishment, if that's a word. The Lord can take away earthly comforts, but for the purpose to cause us to fix our eyes on him. He can make us realize how disappointing worldly delights and entertainment really are. So here's a church impoverished, but Jesus says they are rich. Now let me go to the next phrase here. He says, and the slander of those claiming, claiming themselves to be Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Now the early church, now this is in the Gentile world, but most of the churches started with a, with a Jewish foundation. Jews who came to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the foundation of most churches. But, you know, we're, we're built on everything that came out of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is the story of how God Almighty is bringing Jesus to us. So we're, we're, we're not disconnected from the Old Testament in that sense. And for a long time, maybe as long as 150 years after the ascension of Christ, Christianity was seen just as a sect of Judaism. But the time came, of course, where the Gentiles began, to, began outnumbering the Jews in the church. So the time came when, of course, those in Judaism saw the sect of Christianity as anti-Judaism and, and they came against it. Uh, here, our Lord says in this passage, the slander or blasphemy, the, the Greek word is blasphemian, slander, blasphemy. I know the blasphemy, blasphemy of those claiming themselves to be Jews. 
Now, Christ said, and they're not. They're not Jews. This, uh, this is an interesting indictment from the Lord Jesus Christ because a Jew, strictly speaking from the New Testament especially, is not a Jew who is a Jew outwardly. A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. And that's found in Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 28 and 29. To blaspheme is to, to make uh, reproachful speech injurious to divine majesty. In this, in this case, of course, the Christ of God. Therefore, our Lord declared that these particular people who called themselves Jews were actually a synagogue, there it is, a synagogue of Satan, an assembly, uh, synagogue, synagogue, that's uh, synagogue, that's, that's, uh, that speaks of, of the assembly of the people and not just the people. So this is a, an assembly of Satan. Satan found folks whose hearts were wide open to him and he used them to attack this poor, impoverished, suffering church there in Smyrna. But all of that serves to lead us to Jesus, who is our only hope. Let's look at verses 10. Uh, well, let's look at verse 10. Fear not what you are about to suffer. Oh, that sounds bad. Okay. Don't be afraid of it. Fear not what you are about to suffer. Look or behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. For what purpose? So that you may be tested and you shall have tribulation 10 days. Now that's an interesting statement. Ten days. What is this referred to? Some, I've read it all. Some believe that it, it's a message to the church that there are going to be ten historical persecutions under the Roman Empire. Uh, some see it as a reference to the number ten in scriptures where the number ten comes out in the plagues of Egypt and the commandments, the ten horns, the ten virgins, and so forth. But I think we need to just brush all of that aside and get the main point. Here's the main point. If you're in the midst of a world like that, you stay loyal to Christ and to his word. Commit yourself completely to Christ and it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something to the point that it might impoverish you, but you will have spiritual wealth. And for all of the pressure and for all of the persecution that you may find yourself under, it is only limited because the almighty Christ, look what he says here. He says it'll last 10 days. 
It won't last 11. It won't last a month. It's a specific appointed by Almighty God period of time. And I told you, I'm always telling you how my daddy used to say, God don't make a bill that he don't pay. If he requires suffering, it is for the purpose of testing. But it has an end to it. In this case, 10 days, he says. 10 days. Be faithful. Be faithful to death. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful um, right through to death. And I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life, there are several, I'm not going to go over them right here today, but there are several rewards that Christians are given and each have a different kind of name and it's for a different purpose and a different kind of service that Christians have faithfully uh, been involved with. Here, the crown of life, we read in the Bible that the crown of life is given to those who suffer martyrdom, the crown of life. You served Christ even to death. You get a crown of life. So what we're being taught here is that if our faithfulness requires even that we die for him, then he's already made a special provision for us. This wonderful, beautiful, unfading crown of life. Faithful until death to the one who has granted to us eternal life. Because look at how, look how it ends here. The one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one overcoming, overcoming the, excuse me, the one overcoming there's a double negative here, ume. <clears throat> that means it's always, it's always a powerful negative. This cannot, it will not happen. That's what the Holy Spirit says. The one overcoming shall no not be injured. That's how it would read. Shall not never. I suppose we would translate that. Shall not ever be uh, injured or harmed by the second death. The second death. That death of the second resurrection where people die forever. They just keep dying. The worm never dies. They weep and wail and it's just dying forever. Eternal second death. That's what it is. But our faithfulness to him guarantees that we will never be injured by the second death. Okay, uh, I'm going to stop there.